I was born in a little town called Hope, Arkansas. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Welcome to Campaign Context, an interdisciplinary election podcast. My name is Oscar Winberg. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Obo Academy University, working on modern American political history. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the John Morton Center for North American Studies at the University of Toroko and through the support of the Otto Amam Foundation. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Andelik, and we will be talking about the Democratic Party from a historical perspective. Dr. Andelik is a teaching associate at Queen Mary University of London and a research associate at the Rothermere American Institute at the University of Oxford. He graduated from the University of Edinburgh and received his Master of Studies and his DPhil from the University of Oxford. He is in the process of turning his thesis on the Congressional Democratic Party in the 1970s and 1980s into a book, and his work on Daniel Patrick Moynihan has also appeared in the Historical Journal. I'm happy to welcome you to Campaign Context, Dr. Andalik. Thank you, Oscar. Pleasure to be here. So, the Democratic Party in 2016. Uh, to understand what happened, I think we need to understand the historical changes within the party. Uh, I feel that 1968 seems like the perfect year to start with, when the Democratic Party is torn apart by different factions almost. Uh, where would you start the history of the modern Democratic Party and the turmoil within the party? Um, I, I think 68 is a good, a good place to start as any. Um, you can, we can have debates about whether it should be 64 or maybe even earlier. Um, but I think uh, 68 is the moment when you have the confrontation between the kind of old New Deal coalition and the new politics critique of that, which emerges, first of all, out of, uh, out of the anti-Vietnam War movement but also has a more has a more comprehensive critique of establishment liberalism, um, which they feel is is undemocratic and um, in, in insufficiently attentive to structural inequalities in American society. So then, out of that, of course, Nixon Nixon wins the election with with the Southern Democrats leaving the party for George Wallace, and the 1970s then become this really pivotal decade. For the Democrats, uh, can you talk about both, perhaps most the, the presidential campaign of 1972 and how the party chose somebody as liberal as George McGovern? Well, I think to answer that question, Oscar, we've got to go back to 1968 and to um, that very tumultuous and chaotic convention in Chicago, where you had confrontations in the arena itself and also. Um, in the streets outside between um, protesters and the Chicago Police and the National Guard. Um, and you had the party's anointed candidate, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, becoming the party's nominee, um, despite the fact that he had entered no primaries that year. And that's not, um, totally, that's not, as, unremarkable, it's not as remarkable as it would appear to us now, because... Um, back in 68, the Democratic Party only apportioned about 15% of its delegates via a, uh, via a primary system. But it's out of, the, um, out of the, uh, the resentment and the anger of the new politics movement at having been supposedly cheated out of a nomination they thought was rightfully theirs, uh, in order to assuage that, the, the party um, establishes the Commission on Party Structure and uh, Delegate Selection 
or um, or the McGovern Fraser Commission, as it's also known after its two chairs, George McGovern and Donald Fraser. Um, and those those that that commission spends the next four years essentially reshaping the process by which the party chooses its presidential nominee. So it makes it, it creates a national system of primaries which apportion all delegates. Um, and the fact that George McGovern is the chair of that commission and therefore sees the um, the actual new system being put into place. Um, I don't want this to sound kind of too too dodgy or anything, but the fact that he he knows of that system and understands it um, means that by 1972 he is extremely well placed um, to lead a kind of to lead an insurgency to actually capture the party's nomination. So he's able to put together an extremely effective coalition of grassroots supporters um, who are able to um, run a very strategically brilliant campaign from 1971 to 72, leapfrog several better known candidates and ultimately win the party's nomination in 1972. Well, he then goes down to, to a huge defeat against Nixon losing 49 states. Uh, and there's sort of this uncomplicated understanding of the 1970s being the ascendancy of, of conservatism going from the liberal McGovern defeat to, in 1980, Ronald Reagan and, and the Reagan Democrats moving into the Republican Party. Well, your work complicates this understanding and highlights the internal struggles of Democrats in the 1970s. So which are these forces within the Democratic Party fighting over the direction of the party in the 1970s? Um, yeah, well, one of the things that was striking to me about the 70s when I was uh, studying it was the extent to which you, it has this very is the the very protein character of the decade, particularly when you're thinking about the Democratic Party. There's a great quote from um, David Broder in about 1973-74 where he says that the, the really striking thing about the Democrats is how they swing between sort of euphoria and despair. <laughs> um, so that you you have a situation where you know as you mentioned 1972, George McGovern, party's candidate, goes down to a 49-state defeat against Richard Nixon. Um, it's the heaviest defeat any Democratic candidate has suffered in the, 19, in the 20th century. Uh, within two years, uh, Richard Nixon is out of office um, as a result of Watergate. The Republican Party is bearing a heavy cost for an economic downturn at the same time. And the Democrats win uh, huge majorities in the 1974 elections, in the, in the midterm elections. Um, they increase their, uh, increase, well, they win 49 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. And they already had majorities in both uh, chambers. Richard Nixon was the first president since Zachary Taylor to come into office without carrying at least one um, House of Congress. Um, and they, they managed to increase their, uh, their majorities to, to veto-proof levels um, in both chambers. Um, but one of the remarkable things that happens in, uh, in 1974 is you get the arrival of a group who've been getting a little bit more attention recently, known as the Watergate Babies. Um, and this is a big kind of generational turnover within the Democratic Party. Um, so it, it, 1974 is, you know, we talk a lot about how um, incumbents tend to get re-elected a lot. There's a very high turnover of um, of uh, of Congress people in in '74, I think it's somewhere in the region of um, there are 75 new Democratic representatives and eight new Democratic senators. Um, so it's a very big turnover of the class, and this class is generally is quite young. 
Um, in fact, they have the, one of the youngest members of Congress ever, who's Thomas Downey, he's 25 years old and he's elected in 75, in 74. Um, you have people like Patrick Leahy in Vermont, who is um, young enough to be the grandson of the Republican he's replacing uh, in the Senate. Um, it, the class is also slightly more um, diverse, both racially and in gender terms. The National Women's Political Caucus calls 1974 uh, the year of the breakthrough for women uh, in politics. Um, and that class is also more is, is generally is, is also more politically inexperienced than previously. About half of them have never held any political office before. Um, there's Bob, uh, Terrace Tale of Bob Edgar, who is a Pennsylvania minister who gets kind of, you might call it, politically politically radicalized by um, by the Watergate uh, by the Watergate scandal and claims that he he literally looked up the word Democrat in the phone book in 1973 and then a year later he's a candidate for Congress um, and this uh, this class comes into uh, comes into the in, into the Congress with a very well first of all very kind of they've absorbed a lot of the pro-democracy, pro small d, impulses of the new politics movement. And they come in determined to break the power of um, of the committee structure within Congress. So you have congressional committee system, which is largely has had largely been dominated by a fairly conservative southern chairman. Um, once the Watergate babies arrive, they have a much more iconoclastic um, bent. George Miller of California famously says, you know, we came here to take Bastille. That's his line about what the class wants mm -hmm. to do. Um, and so they set up a... Um, so before Congress actually convenes in January 1975, they convene a series of caucus meetings where they interview all of... Uh, or they invite all of the chairmen to be interviewed um, to determine whether or not they're going to be reappointed. Now, that's something that had never happened before. And a lot of chairmen are pretty shocked at, at what they see as the um, as the lack of uh, the lack of deference, yeah. um, and it causes a certain amount of tension. So there's one one chairman, Edward Hebert, who, who turns up and says, opens his his testimony by saying, "Okay, boys and girls, let me tell you what it's about, what it's like around here." Um, and of course, he's immediately voted down by the Congress and thrown out of his chairmanship. Um, but the net result of these internal changes are that the Democratic Party is left, um, or Democratic Party in Congress becomes more liberal, um, socially and economically, becomes more unified, and becomes um, less bound by committee chairs. So, um, in, in effect, almost everything that had prevented the Democratic Party in the 1950s and 1960s from passing very aggressive liberal legislation kind of vanishes. Um, but what you don't then get is a huge raft of uh, liberal agendas because the party seems to fracture within Congress very quickly. Um, and you end up with a situation where members of Congress, although they're more, although they're quite cohesive in, in a kind of, in a, in a generational sense and in an ideal, in, in, in a, in identity sense that they're not as cohesive ideologically. And there's not as much agreement over what the democratic party has to do next. There's not as much agreement over what the um, what a post great society agenda should look like. Mm. Um, so you have a, a very striking situation in the 1970s where the Democratic Party is superficially very strong, but doesn't really know what it wants to do with it. It's its mm. strength. Can't agree on where it needs to go. Right, and then when the Watergate babies come in, there's still this old guard 
especially on, on the national scene, are the known names. I'm thinking about Hubert Humphrey, uh, Henry Scoop Jackson, uh, people like this who have their position and they have their background in the New Deal, uh, in the New Deal coalition. How do they react to the Watergate babies? Um, in general, they, I, there is an attempt to kind of co-opt them. Um, and there is an attempt to build alliances. Um, people like Henry Jackson in particular are a little wary of what he sees as their, um, as, as some of their cultural liberalism. Um, and at the same time, a lot of the Watergate babies are less comfortable with what they see as the Democratic Party's big government heritage. So they come from, uh, a lot of them come from suburban districts. They tend to draw on support that is often quite fiscally conservative, concerned with tax cuts and government efficiency. Um, so they're a lot more, um, uh, they're a lot more skeptical of big government programs. In fact, when Henry Jackson um, runs uh, for president in 1976, he's one of the only leading presidential candidates who's prepared to call himself a liberal. Um, and mostly he gets away with it because people don't believe him. Um, and he, he's also one of the only candidates uh, in the mid-1970s, one of the only leading, leading Democrats, and Hubert Humphrey's another, who's prepared to make very forceful defenses of big government and of the, um, uh, of the Democratic Party's commitment to um, very ambitious government programs. Whereas the Watergate babies, you know, they're people like Gary Hart, Paul Songus, um, they tend to be a little bit more sceptical of that. And then by the end of the decade in 1980, there's both the very sort of bitter primary challenge from Edward Kennedy towards Jimmy Carter, the incumbent president, and then the year ends with a true conservative in the shape of Ronald Reagan being elected. How does this year change the Democratic Party? Um, yes. 1980 is an, an interesting year. In some ways, what happens in 1980 is um, is indicative of the fact that the Democrats think that they still are the majority party. And to the extent to which they don't take the threat from the Republicans as seriously as perhaps they should. Um, so Ed, Edward Kennedy is always a kind of is a kind of king over the water for liberal Democrats throughout the 1970s. He hadn't he decided not to run in 1972 because of the Chappaquiddick. Uh, scandal. He doesn't run in 1976 because of family issues. Um, and then for most of um, for most of Carter's presidency, because Carter is the only Democratic president between 68 and 92. Um, and Carter runs when when Carter runs in 1976, he runs very much um, less on an ideological agenda than than on himself. So his his position is, you know, I, I will never lie to you. I'm a trustworthy Democrat. So he has a very he sells um, in a way that I think is very modern and in a way that, you know, in some way stands comparison with someone like Donald Trump. You know, he doesn't run on a particular platform. He runs as, as someone who who can be trusted in the office and right. someone who will look out for their interests of the particular constituency he represents. Um, so there's so you have a situation. There's a growing tension between um, more liberal members of the Democratic Party who cluster around Edward Kennedy um, and uh, more conservative members of um, of the party, including a lot of the Watergate babies who tend to be more on the side of 
Jimmy Carter, who think the party needs to be a little bit more reined in. They have a particularly long-running dispute over the issue of uh, national health care reform, national health insurance. Um, you need to get into the actual details of that, but essentially Edward Kennedy supports an immediate introduction of a very comprehensive um, uh, national health insurance program, whereas Jimmy Carter wants uh, to introduce in uh, graduated stages, so a, a very kind of slow reform beginning with cost containment measures um, to keep healthcare costs down overall. Um, and Kennedy thinks that's um, a bit kind of quizzling. Um, and uh, according to Kennedy, the um, the moment that sets him or that really um, that really convinces him that he needs to run um, is Carter's malaise speech in 1979, of his crisis of confidence speech, um, which is actually when it, it you know people forget when it's initially given, it's very well received by the American people. So he comes out and, and talks about the the spiritual crisis that the United States is facing, you know, jumping off from its energy crisis at that point. Um, the polls on that are actually very popular. It, it, or the, the initial kind of public response is actually very, very warm to Carter on that. Kennedy claims that he was horrified when he watches that speech because he thought that it was a failure of presidential leadership. Um, the Kennedys, I think, or the Kennedys always have this sense of uh, leadership as an existential thing. Mm -hmm. So in response to a crisis, a president should do something and do something uh, dramatic. Uh, whereas Carter is coming along and, and kind of, um, from Kennedy's perspective, abdicating responsibility and sort of um, um, ventilating his conscience. Um, so the, the, this combination of, of um, the fact that healthcare reform, which becomes a symbol of the, the divisions between uh, those two wings of the Democratic Party, and Kennedy's disillusionment with Carter leads to him jumping into, into the race in 1979, 1980, and running um, against Carter. One of the things that I think a lot of people forget, and Tim Stanley writes a little about this in his book on the 1980 race, is that Kennedy is actually um, is actually polling very well in national polls. Um, he's running a good, uh, you know, in, in some stages early in, in 1979, he's running a good um, 20 points clear of, uh, of Ronald Reagan, even, and most Republicans. Um, and there's some evidence that there are quite a, there are a number of of voters who vote for Reagan, who perhaps would have voted for Kennedy had he been the Democratic nominee. Um, you can debate that all you want, but I think that, that just complicates this idea of the 1980 election as a rejection of liberalism, um, as opposed to a rejection of Jimmy Carter, which I think is the, the better way to understand it. Uh, it does, but the, um, the actual election itself ends up changing the Democratic Party in very significant ways. I mean, First of all, you start to see um, the party moving towards new constituencies, partly driven by the Kennedy campaign. So um, Ed Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, excuse me, is the first is the first Democratic uh, presidential candidate to um, campaign in a gay bar, for example. Um, so he, in a way that sort of George McGovern had in 1972, he makes um, very conscious, uh, a very conscious appeal into the LGBT. Community by 1984, all Democratic candidates are doing that. Hmm. Um, so you, you see a movement into new constituencies. Um, you also see the uh, also see the, the the kind of the defeat of the Kennedy campaign creates a a, a mythology within the party, um, which is summed up in his um, in his famous 1980 address to the to the convention, um, when he concludes with you know. 
work goes on, the cause endures, the dream will never die. Um, which um, I think um, becomes a kind of uh, a kind of totem for, for liberals going into the 1980s um, and helps form them into a cohesive block to face Reagan. And then what happens during the 1980s? Because the Democrats of the... It seems like a story with so many different strands. You have Jesse Jackson coming up with the, the Rainbow Coalition. You have Gary Hart with all of his problems. Mundale and Labour and uh, Mario Cuomo in, in New York. And also being sort of on the national stage, but still not throwing his hat in the ring. How do the Democrats counter Reagan in the White House and how do they evolve during Reagan? Mm. Um, one of the first, uh, well, one of the first things to, to notice, is, I think, is that um, the Democratic Party initially, and certainly the Democratic Party in Congress, um, has a real sense of having been uh, beaten in some decisive way. Um, they, they, the, so the Reagan administration comes into the White House and the Republican Party behaves as if they have um, an ideological mandate to implement um, the particular agenda they ran on. Because, you know, not only does Reagan win the White House, but um, uh, the Republicans take control of the Senate and sort of defenestrate a number of leading liberals, including George McGovern, um, also people like Frank Church, John Culver, Gaylord Nelson, who'd been sort of le leading lights of the party in, in the 1970s. Um, and the Democrats, or certainly the Democrats in Congress, people around, you know, House Speaker Tip O'Neill, um, have, have this sense that they have lost the initiative, they have in some way lost the trust of the American people, and that they have to give Reagan room to, to try and implement his agenda. This leads to a lot of criticism from a number of liberals. Um, actually, quite a few Democrats are quite relieved in 1980, because you know, you've got to remember that they've been the majority party in Washington in you know, the White House and the Congress the previous four years. So they've been expected to tackle the problems of the 1970s themselves. You have a quote from uh, Gillis Long, who's a, a representative from Louisiana, who, who in the aftermath of the 1980 election says, I know I feel phys psychologically lighter than I have in years. Um, so it's a remarkable sense of a, a kind of weightlifting that it's, it's the Republicans' problem for a bit. Mm. Um, so Reagan is able to pass a very big tax cut initially, um, and uh, and this leads to a lot of criticism of from the um, uh, uh, leads to a lot of criticism of Democratic the Democratic Congressional Party, particularly the party in the House, um, where the the Democrats actually do have the numbers to stop bills coming through mm. because they still control the House. Um, and they start to mount a more aggressive resistance to Reagan um, from about 1982 onwards when he sets out to um, try and roll back the welfare state in significant ways. They're able to particularly um, uh, make a big issue of Reagan's attempted reform of Social Security. Um, in 1982, which um, becomes a, a huge political misjudgment for the president, and and um, he has to end up kind of he he does the, the 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 classic thing of creating a presidential commission to make it go away, um, and that commission eventually comes up with a kind of kludge um, um, that that kicks the problem into the long grass. Um, Beyond the Congress, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. The Democratic Party is pulling itself in in a number of different directions. So the response to the 1980 election, the response to um, 
what is seen as uh, the, 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 the sudden and in some ways kind of unexpected surge of the Republican Party. Um, it's worth remembering that, as I said, you know, the mid 1970s, the Republican Party is in a very parlous state. The RNC actually has to close its doors for a few months because it simply cannot pay its bills. And the Democrats, even as late as 1979, 1980, have a quite a complacent sense of themselves as the nation's majority party. Mm. And they don't reckon with the challenge to the, from the Republicans as, um, uh, as vigilantly as they should. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan who uh, comes up in my research who says, um, this is that in 1982, it, it, it occurs to me that the Republicans have become the party of ideas without any of us noticing. Um, so there's a lot of Democrats who think, well, who feel like they're being left, they've been left behind by a suddenly much more energized and uh, more intellectually stimulated Republican Party. And they have to, and they respond in kind, uh, or they try to respond in kind. So again, you have um, Gary Hart, who is the, uh, who is is one of the Watergate babies. He'd been George McGovern's campaign manager. And he pushes a, a, a doctrine that becomes known as or come to be known as neoliberalism now that's not neoliberalism as as you would see it in the pages of the guardian um that's a, a sort of different type of phenomenon which is is um sort of mostly around um well a, a lot of it's a little bit more pro-market a lot of it's a lot about using um new technologies um a lot of it is about kind of um, embracing more socially liberal trends that are popular in the suburbs and about um, um, well, in some, in some ways, it's 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 kind of taking the McGovern agenda and making it respectable. Hmm. Um, you have Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter's former vice president, who attempts uh, a synthesis of um, the the New Deal tradition and the new politics, um, and I think attempts to pull together quite a broad coalition of interests. Uh, leading up to the 1984 campaign when he becomes the nominee. Um, and so he's ranging from sort of uh, labor groups on one side all the way over to kind of um, civil rights movements, civil rights activists, feminist groups, um, and, and try to pull the various strands of the Democratic Party together um, on, a, on, an, um, on an, an agenda that would be quite familiar in um, in policy terms to someone like Hubert Humphrey. So it's very focused on distributional economic issues. Um, and then you have, uh, of course, Jesse Jackson, who ha- has been identified, I think, with some justice as one of the most uh, significant democratic politicians of, of the, um, well, kind of the post-1970s era, um, who builds this uh, rainbow coalition and ad- advances a, 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 a kind of ideology of multiracial populism um, that uh, in some ways anticipates the, at least in, its, in, its, in the, way that the, the, the way that the coalition looks, um, less so the rhetoric, but in some ways anticipates the Obama coalition. Hmm. Well, I, I was struck to jump ahead as well, because what you're explaining about the 1980s seems highly relevant for today. So, of course, as, as you mentioned, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition is sort of a precursor to the Obama coalition. But before we get to that, uh, there's Bill Clinton and uh, the Democratic Leadership Council, which is this centrist, centrist effort 
uh, of the Democratic Party. The basic understanding is sort of that 12 years of Republicans in the White House forced Democrats to move to the right or, or to the center. But it wasn't like the party at large, not to speak of the left, agreed on this, right? So how does Clinton come out ahead and, and the Democratic Leadership Council sort of win the battle of the Democratic Party in the late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, the Democratic Leadership Council is a fascinating thing, actually, because it has it, it becomes an extremely important faction in the 1980s and 1990s. But I, I increasingly have the sense today that it's kind of vanished without trace. Yeah. I'm, I'm hard pressed to see its long term impact on the Democratic Party. But that's me jumping ahead. So. Um, the, so the DLC is founded in the aftermath of the 1984 election when Walter Mondale is the Democratic Party's candidate and ends up going down to another 49 state defeat. So that's, you know, not only have the Democrats only won uh, one presidential election since 1968 by that point, but they've lost two um, and carried only one state. Um, and in the case of, in, in some ways, in the case of 1984, it's even more embarrassing because the only state they can carry is Minnesota, which is Walter Mondale's state. Um, and of course, Mon and the, the, the Democratic Leadership Council um, is, is the vehicle for a faction within the Democratic Party that call themselves the New Democrats. Um, and to a certain extent, they they grow out of, I think, the Gary Hart neoliberal tradition. And they are critical of the Mondale and Jackson interpretations of liberalism. Um, and they are, um, in, in particular, they are, they are critical of... Um, of what they see as Mondale's effort to reconcile all these different interest groups in the Democratic Party. They, they, they say that Democrats shouldn't spend so long pandering to all these various interest groups because it just just makes the Democrats look kind of particularist um, and, and not and like they aren't presenting an agenda for, you know, quote, the American people. Um, they also um, they also criticize what they see as kind of um, as uh mondale's kind of big government uh liberal agenda so his you know one of the famous moments of the 1984 campaign is when is when mondale stands on the stage at, at the convention and says you know mr reagan will raise your taxes and so will i he won't tell you i just did um now that's that's true because reagan actually ends up having to raise taxes in his second term but it's a, um it's generally agreed in the democratic party that, that is an extraordinarily foolish thing for mondale to have done because it makes it plays into the Republican critique of the Democrats at that time, which is that they are spendthrifts, that they're going to get in, they're going to raise taxes, and then they're going to use it to to spend on their all, all their favored little interest groups. So Labour, African Americans, uh, feminists, all, all you know, all these all these dreadful people that, that the Democrats want to bring into power. Um, so the the DLC is is a response to what they see as as that kind of distorted governing philosophy. Uh, they're mostly Southern and Western Democrats, um, so they're, they're mostly um, suburban Democrats as well. Uh, they mostly don't have really, um, particularly strong relationships with organized labor, um, and they, uh, their pitch is that you need to move the Democratic Party to the center. So the, it, it, in some respects, it's the, they are adapting the Democratic Party, as they see it, to the way that Reaganism and conservatism have transformed America in much the same way that the Republicans had to adapt to the post-New Deal United mm -hmm. States. 
So they say you need to make the Democratic Party more pro-market. You need to make the Democratic Party more culturally conservative. So uh, they, Bill Clinton, when he becomes the nominee in 92, is the first Democratic candidate, um, probably since Humphrey, who's pro-death penalty. Um, they're, they're generally very hawkish on the deficit. Um, they're also very um, they're much tougher on foreign policy um, than that they reject what they see as McGovernite pacifism or, or isolationism, as they might say. Um, and they become increasingly active after the 1988 presidential election when Michael Dukakis, who in some respects, I, I think what's interesting is that Dukakis actually absorbs the, a lot of the, the lessons supposedly, the, or a lot of the critiques of the Democratic Party, the, the DLC, excuse me, are advancing. And he runs in some ways a, a less, over, he runs a much less overtly lib, quote unquote, liberal campaign. Um, he makes the centerpiece of his campaign in 88, you know, idea, competence, not ideology, and ends up losing very badly to George H.W. Bush. Um, but nonetheless, the Democratic, or the DLC, see the, uh, see the Dukakis experiment as, you know, kind of in a long line of Democratic presidential candidates who failed to heed, um, failed to heal what the American people are telling them. So they end up kind of, um, they end up kind of picking Bill Clinton to a certain extent. You know, he's, he's, he's um, chosen by leading members of the DLC like Al Fromm. He, he, he's invited to be um, chair of the Democratic Leadership Council in 1990. And then he becomes the presidential candidate in 1992. In some respects, there is, a, I think, a kind of fluky element to how Clinton becomes the actual Democratic candidate because so many other bigger names decided to stay away um, from that uh, election cycle. So Mario Cuomo, who we've mentioned, had been governor of New York, um, who would have been a very kind of big beast in that election cycle. He decides not to run. Uh, and there are other there are other Democrats as well who um, who stay out. One of the principal reasons they do is that a lot of them think George H. W. Bush, who's the president at that point, is unbeatable. Um, partly because of his kind of sky high approval ratings after the first Gulf War, um, and the assumption is that any Democrat who goes up against him is just going to lose badly. Um, but Cl the Clinton campaign is is able to spot at least that um, uh, that the domestic situation and in particular the uh, the recession from 1991 to 92 is going to be more harmful to bush than than other people are or than other democrats are giving it credit for and so they're able to run a very domestically focused campaign in 92 and to win um one of the i think striking things is that bill clinton actually only increases the democratic vote from 1988 by a couple of percentage points i think dukakis loses with about 42 percent and bill clinton wins with 43. um so it, it, it's not as if the the dlc has discovered some kind of philosopher's stone to to mm -hmm. synthesize a new a new governing majority um it it's more that they've uh, um uh, that uh, they're able to kind of um, figure out, or it's more that Clinton is able to exploit the unpopularity of an incumbent and mm. uh, also a split field in the 1992 election and, uh, and end up winning. So ironically then, the 1990s and Bill Clinton's centrist politics came back to haunt Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. Uh, and as we've already been talking about the, the sort of the Obama coalition, now, put aside that the Democrats has won the popular vote in the six of the last seven presidential elections, 
the defeat for Hillary Clinton means there's going to be infighting, and that infighting seems to be along the lines of Bernie Sanders' progressive, economically focused, almost echoes of the New Deal versus Hillary Clinton as a troubled representative of this Obama coalition. What exactly is happening with the with the Democratic Party, and where should we look in the past to understand this this rift? Yeah, um, I yes, I wouldn't be. I mean, another factor that's going to this is I wouldn't be surprised if you see a a a resurgence of some kind of DLC type of critique of the Democratic Party in in the aftermath of the 2016 election, which is that um, in some ways, in similar to 2004. There'll be um, people coming along and saying, actually, what this proves is that we need to get uh, like a culturally conservative, economic populist red state governor uh, to run in in 2020 and, and then we'll win. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Yes, the um, the the. Oh, the, the legacies of the 1990s did come back, I think, very, very drastically to or very dramatically to haunt Hillary Clinton in in this uh, campaign. Certainly uh, during the Democratic primaries, I think she struggled to overcome, you know, uh, things like Bill Clinton's welfare reform bill um, or the, her comments about the kind of the, uh, about the super predators in the aftermath of the, mm. of the, of the crime bill. Um, and even though, I, you know, it, I, I think it's deeply dubious to what extent, if at all, Hillary Clinton should be held responsible for, for these things. Um, certainly people did. Um, and so in it, that, I think, was a big kind of um, albatross around her neck during during the primaries. And in some respects, it was um, or it's interesting, it was it was a problem for her in the general election as well. I think the thing that uh, I think we have to bear in mind is that Hillary Clinton is in some respects or is is on paper. A, a very bad candidate. Um, so she's got a great deal of baggage. Um, she's got um, she's uh, someone who's been in politics or in national politics for several decades. Uh, and and in general, parties don't like to nominate those type of people. You know, there's you know we we had heard the repeated refrain Hillary Clinton is the most experienced presidential candidate mm. um, in history, and you can argue about that. But in general, people of general certainly over recent decades, parties don't like nominating particularly experienced candidates mm. because. Um, experience of politics means you have um, it means you have a record that you can be held accountable for. It means you have you have made compromises, um, as is inevitable in power, and and people will find uh, people will find that distasteful. You know, when Obama came into the Senate in 2004, he was report he'd reportedly was was planning to kind of wait a few more cycles before running for president, and was urged by people like Harry Reid not to, because the longer he stayed in the Senate, the more record the more of a a record he would have that would be a problem for him. So Hillary Clinton was on paper a very good candidate, a very bad candidate, excuse me. The reason she wins the nomination in 2016 is she's actually a very good politician. People forget this. And she's actually, she had a, she's extremely skillful at pulling together the various different um, elements of the Democratic coalition, uh, getting them all on side, um, at scaring away a lot of other potential challengers who, you know, potentially could have actually beaten her. Um, and was able to to beat the Sanders insurgency, which was, you know, very much stronger, I think, than people expected. Um, but it, she still beat it decisively in the primaries, mm. I think. Um, in terms of broader lessons from the from the 2016 campaign and what's going to happen next, um, 
I I remember back in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of talk um, about the emerging democratic majority, you know, kind of going back to a thesis of advanced by John Judas and Ruta Shera, uh, saying that there was there was this uh, that demographic changes were going to ensure that the Democrats had a kind of permanent lock on the Electoral College for for many cycles to come. And the fact that Democrats had such strength with um, uh, minority voters, younger voters, college educated white uh, professional voters and single and working women um, would mean that they had a kind of permanent coalition. Um, and, that you know, people were talking about, oh, the Republicans will never be able to win another, another presidential election. Uh, we've seen that's definitely not the case um, in the 2016 election. And that for all that um, Hillary Clinton is is going to win the popular vote and probably going to win it fairly handily, um, the actual Democratic coalition is at the very least fairly inefficiently distributed. So it's not in the places it needs to be in order to deliver them a win within the Electoral College system. But I think you will definitely see a a growing tension uh, over the next few years between, um, well, to, um, to put this crudely, between what you might call identity politics liberalism and um, economically populist liberalism. Mm. Uh, now, one of the key points of my um, thesis is actually is I don't think that those um, strains of liberalism are as much in conflict as people think. Um, as I think there is a perfectly reasonable synthesis there, which can be worked out. Um, but you will definitely see, and, and to a certain extent, it's already happening. Um, you will see people, you will see people make an argument that the Democratic Party needs to focus more on the white working class. It needs to downplay issues of racism and sexism um, um, and, and, you know, rethink its priorities. And you will see pushback against that uh, from um, from Democrats who, who think that you, you need to, the, the future of the Democratic Party, I think rightly, is with that kind of coalition of the ascendant. So I think that sums it up perfectly, both the history of the Democratic Party and, and where we go from here. Um, I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Andelik. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I want to remind everybody to keep an eye out in the coming years for Dr. Andelik's book on the Congressional Democratic Party in the 1970s and 1980s please visit the Campaign Context website at www.campaigncontext.wordpress.com for previous episodes on subjects such as the history of conservative media, the history of energy crisis, and the Trump syllabus 2.0. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help us out by spreading the word to friends and colleagues. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. You'll find links for this and more on the homepage. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.